Okay, well, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're really just getting started in this very impressive section that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And I think I opened up with this last week, but I need to repeat it again. Uh, This is sort of an intimidating passage, an intimidating three chapters for a Bible teacher. Because there is a depth, there's a power, there's a, a background to these three chapters that we call the Sermon on the Mount that's really sort of humbling. I I, I think it's impossible to teach through these chapters and feel that you have adequately explained or adequately uh, discussed all the material that's within them. Uh, Books and volumes of books have been written on these three chapters, again, that we call the Sermon on the Mount. Well, last time we were together, we only got through the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5, and I don't expect that we're going to finish the entire chapter here uh, this evening, but we'll make it as far as we can. In the first 12 verses, we have, first of all, this important introduction in verses 1 and 2. Let me just read that to you again. It says, In seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... In other words, this was a teaching that was for the disciples, but yet at the same time for the multitudes as well. We find that by the end of Jesus' message here, that the people, not just the twelve, this is a message for the disciples of Jesus, but not merely the twelve. Really more so, it's all of those who would want to be disciples, disciples in the looser sense, not in the stricter sense. The followers of Jesus, again, in the looser sense, not in the stricter sense. And another way for us to think about it as well, this is somewhat Jesus' message to his disciples as to what he wants them to tell the world. I like to think that this is sort of Jesus' manifesto of the kingdom. Now, again, that sort of title isn't unique to me, but it's sort of Jesus' idea of this is how my kingdom is ordered. These are the priorities of my kingdom. And if you want to be a disciple of mine, this is what you have to have in your mind. And so he begins with these great beatitudes that we talked about last week. And I'll just read them for you here, beginning with this foundation of poverty of spirit in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And we read these first seven Beatitudes, and you're just struck that if a person could be these things, what a remarkable person they would be. What a character they would have, right? Poverty of spirit, speaking of a humility and just sort of a humble character. They they know their own insufficiency before God. They, They mourn not only over their own sin, but over the condition of fallen humanity. They're meek, which means that they they have a right sense of their own rights, but yet not insisting on their rights. They they have power, but it's under control and not used for selfish purposes. They hunger and thirst after righteousness. They're merciful. They're pure in heart. They're peacemakers. And you just think of that kind of person. Wouldn't you love to have that kind of person for your neighbor, right? That kind of character description. Wouldn't you love that kind of person to be your best friend? That's why... We're sort of shocked when we read the eighth beatitude, which is the only beatitude to have much of an explanation. We read here, starting at verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And we read that and we think, well, who would ever persecute these lovely people who are described in the previous verses? Who would ever revile them and say evil things against them and attack them? But we find that this is the way of the world, isn't it? And if you want uh, the ultimate example, just think of the man who said these words, right? Think of Jesus. 
Think of Jesus, who was the perfect embodiment of these Beatitudes, who lived among men for some 33 years and was always full of love, was always full of truth, was always full of mercy, was always full of grace, was always full of the joy and the pleasure of God, and mankind couldn't wait to kill him. Men couldn't wait to say evil things about Jesus. Now, it's funny, when they say evil things about us, we think, well, maybe in some way I deserve it, but not the Son of God. And it reminds us that there really is a persecution. There really is an attack that comes against the godly person that's described by these beatitudes that is this fierce, hateful persecution. Now, in light of that, how should we live? This is going to surprise us. Look at here at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You see, now transitioning in to verse 13, Jesus in the previous verses has sort of told us what a disciple should be. This is what a disciple should look like. And then maybe if you want to say, this is what the disciples should respect in treatment by the world when he talks about persecution. But now starting in verse 13, he says, this is how I want my disciples to display their lives. He says, first of all, you're the salt of the earth. Now, disciples are like salt. Number one, you can say because they're precious. You know, salt was a very valuable commodity in the ancient world. We don't think of it that much today, right? It's pretty easy to get salt. You get salt anywhere. You get salt for free. Uh, You know, go to a restaurant. They're not charging you for the salt, are they? I don't think it's gotten that bad in the economy yet that they're charging you for salt at the table. And so they don't, I mean, salt is common. It's no big deal. In the ancient world, salt was very precious to the point that often, at least for some periods of time, Roman soldiers were paid in salt. That's, That's how they received their wages. And therefore, at least in English, we get a phrase, a a proverb, to say someone or something is worth its salt. It's worth its value. It's it's something that's, that's worthy. Well, again, if salt is precious, then disciples should be that precious to the world. But it's not only that. Salt also has a very valuable preserving influence. In the ancient world and in the modern world, salt is used to preserve meats and to slow decay. And Christians should have a preserving influence on their culture as well. So we should be precious, we should be preserving, but there's another aspect as well. Disciples are also like salt because they add flavor. Christians should be, if you want to call it, a flavorful people. They should be something that makes the world better, that makes it have a little bit more flavor and not less. And that's why Jesus says here in verse 13, if the salt loses its flavor, then it is good for nothing. Salt must keep its saltiness to be of any value. Now, I need to qualify this because there might be a chemist in the bunch here. If you're a chemist, you say, well, listen, David, we know that the chemical properties of salt uh, uh, cannot break down and they cannot be, you know, washed away. And so salt can't really lose its saltiness. And you could give me all the chemical explanation, but I'll just tell you that, that it's a known historical fact that the, what they used in the ancient world was so mixed with impurities and stuff that for what they used as salt, it could lose its savor. It could lose its saltiness. And you were just left with the impurities of the salt without the salt itself left in there. And then when it got into that shape, what did they do? They just throw it out in the street and they would use it to just sort of pave the ground. It was of no value and it was trampled underfoot. In the same way, you could say that if a Christian loses their flavor, their saltiness, they become good for nothing. And that's what Jesus is warning us against. And then if he could take it even further, he begins in verse 14. Look at this carefully. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, as I read this, I'm just struck at the contrast between what Jesus says here And what he said previously about all the persecution that you should expect, right? 
If you're expecting persecution, if you're expecting to be attacked, the last thing you want to do is let your light shine before men, right? You, you want to have a value upon secrecy, on holding back, upon not doing much. But Jesus says, no, no, instead, you need to let your light so shine before men. And he says a very impressive thing to these Christians. He says, you are the light of the world. Now, when Jesus said that, he gave Christians both a great compliment and a great responsibility. Let me explain to you what I mean by the compliment. The compliment is found in this. In two other places in the Gospel of John, John said, excuse me, Jesus says what about himself? Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Well, wait a minute, which is it? Jesus, are you the light of the world? Or are we the light of the world? And what would Jesus say if you asked him that question? He'd say, yes. Yes to both of them. I am the light of the world, Jesus would say, and you are the light of the world. So it's a great compliment But at the same time, it's also a great responsibility. It means that not only do we receive light from Jesus, but we must also be light givers. We've got a, we have to have a greater concern than only ourselves. And you cannot give to other people what you don't have yourself. And so we have to have other people to shine unto. I want you to notice something in these verses that we've talked about, 13, 14, 15, 16. Jesus never challenged us to become salt or to become light. He simply said, you are. He didn't say, now, come on now. I really want to challenge you. Be a light in the world. No, he said, you are a light. And either you're a dim light or you're a shining light, but you're the light. Please remember, people, the world does not have any other light. This poor, poor, dark world where people live and grope around in darkness like it's midnight, they can't get light that they need except through God's people. Have you ever thought about that? Now, look, I know we try to point people to God's word, don't we? And we should. Don't we try to point people to God's word and say, here, here's the light of God's truth. Read this. It'll be a lamp unto your feet, a light unto your path. And that's true. But you know what? The people in this world have a curious problem, don't they? I don't think it's actually a problem, but it seems like a problem to me sometimes. Is they don't want to read the Bible. They want to read my life. My life is the Bible that they look at. And they're not going to read the Bible until first they have read my life and see something worthy to lead them on to read the Bible. So when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, that is a heavy responsibility for us. Yes, we are, Lord Jesus. You're the way that the world receives light. By the way, another key thought in both the pictures of salt and light is distinction. You see, salt is needed because the world is rotting and decaying. But if our Christian life is also rotting and decaying, it won't be any good. Light is needed because the world's in darkness. But if our Christian lives imitate the darkness, then we have nothing to show the world. The Christian life isn't going to be any dramatically, uh, isn't going to have, should I say, a dramatic impact unless it's different from the world. Therefore, Jesus says, you saw it right there in those words, let your light so shine before men. That's the whole purpose of light, to illuminate, to expose what's there. That light has to be exposed before it's of any use. If you hide that light under a basket, it's no longer useful. You can have a nice light here, illuminating the notes that I'm looking at right here. Without this little light, I'd be in a lot of trouble. I wouldn't be able to see what's going on there. If you cover it up, it's of no use, right? Oh, I have a fine, shining light under there. Isn't it great? But if you cover it, it's of absolutely no use. Therefore, the light has to be exposed or it's no good. Now, again, isn't this the great temptation, especially when you're persecuted? Especially when there is a price to pay for shining your light. You say, where's the basket? Where's the cover? I need to be covered over because I don't want to pay the price for shining the light. But Jesus says, no, you have to. Like what Charles Spurgeon said on this point, he said, Christ never contemplated the production of secret Christians. Christians whose virtues would never be displayed 
pilgrims who would travel to heaven by night and never be seen by their fellow pilgrims or by anybody else. You see, what Jesus is trying to tell us is this, is that if you're going to live a life of one of my disciples, if you're going to be one of my followers, that is not a life lived in isolation. There have been times in the history of the church when there's been this great monastic ideal where people thought that the holiest men who walked the face of the earth were these men who went off into the desert and had no contact with anybody and they lived in complete isolation, just them and God. Or they climbed up on top of a mountain with snow and they lived in some kind of cave, you know, with nobody else around. Oh, how holy they were. And I protest, I say, I admire the self-discipline of those men. But listen, I don't think that they live a Christian life that's worthy being an example. They, they have salt, but, but it's not being shaken out into the world. They have light, but it's taken away to a place where nobody can see it. The Christian life is not to be lived in isolation. You see, we often assume that the inner qualities that the Beatitudes talk about, right, the poverty of spirit, the showing mercy, the being a peacemaker, all of those wonderful things, those wonderful qualities of life, we think that those things can only be developed in isolation. I'll never develop those things unless I remove myself from the world. And Jesus said, no, 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 I won't allow that. If you develop these things but don't mix in with the world, then it's useless, And if the point weren't clear enough, look at what Jesus said in verse 14. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. You can picture that in your mind, right? Such a city that's on a hill and it's prominent and it can't be hidden. If you see such a city from a distance, it's hard to take your eyes off of it, isn't it? This summer, uh, my family and I, we met up with my sister and my mom and my brother and his wife, and we had a nice time in the beautiful hills of Tuscany for a week where we rented rooms in this villa, and it was really amazing. And across the valley in Tuscany, there was this city on the other hill across the valley, and it was white, and it was shining, and it was this beautiful Tuscan village. I can't remember the name of it, but even if I could, I'd be mispronouncing it so badly that it would just be funny for me to say it. But anyway, this amazing city just stood out so much on the hillside that if you were looking across the valley, you couldn't help it. Your eyes were drawn to that city. Your eyes were drawn to the beautiful white buildings rising up above on the hillside. Your eyes were just drawn to it. There it is. There's the city. That's how Jesus says we should be prominent. Jesus wanted the people of his kingdom to live lives that visibly attracted attention to the beauty of God's work in their life. And now you can see, now you can see what an absolute priority it is of Satan to make us quiet and anonymous believers, to make us not want to shine our light as as little as we can. We want to do it as little as we can, and you can see what a tremendous strategy that is of Satan. Jesus touches on it even more here in verse 15. He says, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. You see, the idea of the lampstand gives the sense that we're to be intentional about letting this light shine. You, you just don't light the lamp and then leave it there. But no, indeed, in the house, you go and you put it up on a lampstand. You can picture that in your mind, right? The little oil lamp that they would have in the ancient world, right? Just like a little dish that they would have a wick in and they would light it and there would be some kind of olive oil in there and it would burn. Well, what would you do? You would light that lamp and you wouldn't keep it down low. No, they had special things, a special shelf that you go and you'd set it on and it would help fill the room with the light from that lamp. So again, we should look for ways to put our light in a more prominent place, not in a less prominent place. I like what Jesus says there. Isn't it remarkable? He said, uh, let your light, so, excuse me, right before that, he says, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Everybody. You just let your light shine. Here I am. This is unbelievable. And everybody can see it and be put up to that kind of prominent place where people can see the light. Now, why, look at verse 16, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's the purpose of letting your light so shine by doing good works. 
The purpose is so that other people will glorify God and not you. The purpose isn't, oh, look, I'm a shining light. Aren't I wonderful? No, 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 that's not the idea. No, the idea is, here I am. I'm a shining light. Isn't the God who gave me this light wonderful? You know, you think about it. You can imagine just in your mind, you, you, you see it in a movie sometimes, the war movies where there you are, you know, there's the danger of air raids. And so what do they have to do? Complete blackout, right? And there's the soldiers, they're fighting in the trenches, right? And, and everything's real quiet and everything's the pitch black of night. And then one soldier does one thing. What does he do? He lights a match for a cigarette and that suddenly alerts the enemy to where everybody is and all this incoming fire comes just because the man was so foolish to let a little tiny light shine. Oh, how foolish could he be? But that's how we feel, right? If I let my light shine, what do I become? I instantly become a target. Well, listen, let's face it. In some sense, that's true. But in the other sense, you need to realize that it's something that is a blessing for God for you to be made this kind of conduct. And Jesus is laying it out to us. Look, if you're going to be a disciple of mine, this is what you have to keep in mind so that they would see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Again, it's not to see how good you are, but how good God is. You have to think about this. Isn't it crazy? Picture Jesus speaking to a group of Galilean peasants, right? That's what we're talking about, right? He's not speaking in Athens. He's not speaking in Rome. He's not speaking in Alexandria to the tremendous library and the scholarship there. These aren't people in togas and fine, listen. These are Galilean farmers and fishermen and peasants. That's who he's talking to. And Jesus looks at them and he says, you are the salt of the earth earth. Jesus, are you crazy? The earth is pretty big, don't you think? He says, you are the light of the world. You almost think, Jesus, you have delusions of grandeur, Jesus. What are you talking about? But it's true, isn't it? These Galileans really did salt the earth. These Galileans really did light the world, and they did, and we can as well. You know, the three pictures put together that Jesus speaks about here are are very powerful speaking about the effect of Jesus' disciples in the world. He said that we're like salt, that we're like light, and we're like a city, right, set on a hill. Those three things. Well, salt is the opposite of corruption, and it keeps corruption from getting worse. Christians should make the world better, not worse. Light, it gives the gift of guidance so that those who have lost their way can find their way home. And that's what the church should always be doing. It should be showing the world the way back home to God. And then finally, a city. A city's the product of social order and government. It's against chaos and disorder. And that's what Christians should be in the community as well. Now, one more thing I want you to notice. Before we go here to verse 17, we notice this. It's the first time in verse 16 that we find a mention of God as our Father, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The idea is wonderful, that when people see our good lives, they look beyond us and they must say, what a Father in heaven these people have. And isn't it funny? That the first time we see this expression, Father, used for God in the New Testament, it's when men are seeing the good works of his children, of us. You know, I think if we would live more as children of God, then people would be able to see more of our Father in heaven. Now, when we come into verse 17, we come into kind of a different section. It's very interesting about uh, the Sermon on the Mount. In some ways, structurally, the Sermon on the Mount is kind of disjointed. In other words, it's sort of set off in sections, and the sections almost are like a pause where Jesus picks up another theme. You know, I almost picture Jesus having this first section, verses uh, 3 through 16, where he talks about the Beatitudes, he talks about persecution, and then he talks about being the salt of the earth, light of the world, and a city set on a hill. And that's sort of one section. And then maybe he discusses it with his disciples for a while. And then now it's almost on to a different, related, but different topic. And Jesus is saying, let me tell you something else. 
And I have to say, this section beginning at verse 17, it's pretty dramatic. Jesus says this, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Now, Jesus here began a long discussion of the law of the Old Testament, and he wanted to make it very clear at the beginning of this discussion that Jesus was not setting himself against the Old Testament. You have to think it's almost a very interesting thing for Jesus to say. Not almost. It is very interesting, but it's remarkable how he says, I don't want anybody to think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. Now, when Jesus says the law or the prophets, what is he speaking of? That phrase, the law and the prophets, was used to describe the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament. They just called it the Word of God. They didn't have a New Testament yet, so they couldn't call this the Old Testament. He's just talking about the Word of God that was delivered to Israel. Jesus is saying, nobody should think that I'm against this book, the Old Testament. Nobody should think that for much. I didn't come to destroy this. I came to fulfill it. Jesus did not come to destroy the word of God, but to free it. To free it from the way that the scribes and the Pharisees had wrongly interpreted the word of God. I want you to notice, Jesus is here coming in to this very, very important role that he had in his preaching of being a Bible teacher and a Bible interpreter. And one of the reasons it was so important for Jesus to fulfill this role was because there was so much wrong understanding of the word of God in his own day. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to talk about in the rest of Matthew chapter 5. But make no mistake about it. When he says, I did not come to destroy the law, he's not speaking specifically of the law of Moses, right? As if he's speaking just of the Ten Commandments. No, no, not at all. Now, of course, it includes the Ten Commandments and the law of Moses, but it's much broader than that as well. It's referring to the Word of God, the Old Testament, that we would call today, as I said before, of course, they did not call it the Old Testament. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I want everybody to understand, I have not come to be against the law. Matter of fact, he says there, for assuredly, I say to you. Isn't that remarkable that he said that for assuredly? You know what I think is amazing about that? Verse 18, where he says for assuredly. That is the ancient Greek word. You know this. Don't tell me you don't know any ancient Greek words because you know this one. It's the ancient Greek word, amen. You know that ancient Greek word, right? Amen which means truly or certainly. When Jesus said, for assuredly I say to you, that was a very unique way of speaking. We have no evidence that other teachers in Jesus' time or in time before him used that kind of phrasing. You know what the prophets used to say? What did the prophets used to say? Thus saith the Lord, right? What does Jesus say? assuredly, I say to you. Do you catch the difference in authority? Isn't it fascinating that Jesus never said, thus saith the Lord? Isn't that remarkable evidence of his own deity? Now, some people want to regard Jesus as just a prophet, just a wonderful messenger from God. But I'll tell you this, he didn't speak like any other prophet did, right? The other prophets said, thus saith the Lord. Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you. It's just a remarkable little signature of his great authority. And again, what he says, I say to you right there in verse 18, he says, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. You see, Jesus wanted to make it clear that he had authority apart from the law of Moses but not in contradiction to it. Now, Jesus didn't add anything to the law except one thing. You might say, well, how can you say that Jesus added one thing? Oh, no, Jesus added one thing to the law. You know what he added to the law? Perfect obedience. And that had never been added to the law before, never. 
There had never been a man who had been perfectly obedient on this earth until Jesus Christ. And you can say in that way, that fulfilled what Jesus said there in verse 17, that he did not come to destroy, but to fulfill the law. Now, please understand this. Even though Jesus often challenged man's interpretations of the law, he never broke the law of God. Here's a good example. Jesus and his disciples are going through uh, some fields of grain. They're walking on the road. There's fields of grain on either side of them. And they're hungry, and it's the Sabbath. So what do the disciples do? They go over to the stalks of grain. They take a piece of the head off the grain. They roll it in their hands. They get the little kernels. They blow off the chaff, and they pop it in their mouth. It's a nice little snack on the go that you could get, right? They didn't have gas stations and little mini markets and all that kind of stuff back then. It's the best you could do for a little snack on the road. But what's this? The scribes and the Pharisees objected. They said, Master, your disciples are working on the Sabbath. They said, well, look, they're harvesting grain and they're threshing grain and they're, they're separating the wheat from the chaff and they're doing all this. It's all this work. And Jesus absolutely disallowed their wrong interpretation. Now, please notice, Jesus did not break the law of the Sabbath. All he did was break the human traditions that they had set up around laws like the Sabbath and around other things as well. Jesus never broke the law. Do you understand that? Jesus never violated the law of God. And here he was. He was greater than the law, greater than the prophets, but he was full of reverence for the institutions, full of reverence for the sacred books of the Old Testament. Jesus didn't come and rip up the Bible and say, here, I'm going to bring you something brand new. No, 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 no. He said, no, what we had before was the word of God, and I have not come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. And he did fulfill it. He fulfilled the law and the prophets in every way. You know, there's a lot of doctrinal teachings in the word of God in the Old Testament, right? A lot of doctrinal teachings in the law and the prophets, is there not? Jesus fulfilled them in that he brought an even more complete revelation. There's a lot of predictive prophecy in the law and the prophets, is there not? And Jesus fulfilled it because he's the promised one showing the reality that was behind the shadows. Jesus fulfilled the moral and the legal demands of the law in the prophets in that both he reinterpreted them in truth and he kept them by his own life. And you can say that Jesus even fulfilled the penalty of the law and the prophets for us by his death on the cross because he took the penalty that we deserve. And that's why Jesus can say with all strength here in verse 18 that not one jot or one tittle will pass away from the law till all is fulfilled. Do you understand what that means? A jot and a tittle were small punctuation marks in Hebrew uh, writing. It's as if Jesus would say not one little dot that goes over an I or one little cross that goes on a T will pass away until everything is fulfilled. And it was true. Jesus did perfectly fulfill the law in every aspect of it. And might I say there is one other place that we need to talk about Jesus' fulfillment of the law. The law also fulfilled a penalty, or excuse me, the law also prescribed a penalty for those who broke the law, right? You read the Old Testament, you can't miss this. There was a penalty in the law for those who broke the law. Jesus fulfilled that penalty exactly and bore in himself the penalty that you and I deserved. So that's Jesus's relationship to the law. Now look in verses 19 and 20, he's going to describe the disciples' relationship to the law. Notice what he says. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. I think these two verses are amazing. First of all, verse 19, Jesus says, you see this Bible that you've been reading? Of course, they didn't read it individually. They would just go to the synagogue and hear it read to them. 
the scribes and the Pharisees, they might read the Old Testament individually, but not the common people. But Jesus is saying, this law that you've heard about, keep it. Keep this law. It's good. It's holy. It's just. The commandments are to be obeyed, and they're to be obeyed as fulfilled by Jesus' life and teaching, not as they were interpreted by the legalistic thinking of the religious authorities of Jesus' day. So listen, we approach the law and we keep it, just like Jesus told us to do. But certain parts of the law are fulfilled. Is sacrifice commanded by the law? Doesn't the Bible say that when a woman has a baby, that she's supposed to bring a sacrifice to God, right? Uh, What's it supposed to be, a lamb? Or if she's not uh, rich enough to afford a lamb, she's supposed to bring a bird, and she's supposed to sacrifice these before God when she has a baby. I think we have a few mothers here in our midst. I want to know, did any of you bring a sacrifice to God when you had your children? I don't think so. Then how can you say that you kept the law? Jesus told you to keep the law. No, 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 we're misunderstanding this here. We understand very plainly that the sacrifice commanded by the law was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Because he offered the perfect sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, the all-covering sacrifice, the New Testament tells us that sacrifice is fulfilled in Jesus and does not have to be repeated by us even though the Old Testament commanded it. Yet it's fulfilled. Therefore, we do not run the danger of being called least in the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus said in verse 19, by not observing animal sacrifice as is described in the law of Moses. Instead, Jesus says, whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, I teach the Bible to you. I want you to teach the Bible to others. Now, the Christian is done with the law as a way of gaining righteousness, but it does not mean that anything that, that we cannot learn a tremendous amount from God and his dealings with us in the Old Testament, especially as the Old Testament points itself to Jesus Christ. And then Jesus says something in verse 20. You know what? I would have loved to see the expression on the faces of his listeners when Jesus said this. I would have loved this. Look at what he says. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you understand how devoted the scribes and the Pharisees were to keeping the law? The Pharisees in particular. The Pharisees had made their lives a dedicated sacrifice to observing the law in the smallest measure. And Jesus even talks about this later on in the Gospel of Matthew, right? There's the Pharisee in his herb garden, right, in the backyard. And he's counting out little herb seeds from his herb garden, right? And what does he do? Well, I've got here uh, uh, 43 herb seeds, four go to God. I must tithe off of the herb seeds that come from my garden because I got a tithe. That is how concerned they were to obey the law in the smallest points. The heart of this devotion, you can sometimes see in the modern world. I remember reading a news story many, many years ago about an apartment fire in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood in Jerusalem. These apartments are burning in this Orthodox neighborhood. And you say, well, what's the big deal? Call the fire department and get the fire engines out there and put the fire out. Well, no, here's the problem. It's the Sabbath. And so before they could call the fire department, they had to ask a rabbi whether a telephone call to the fire department would be forbidden on the Sabbath. You see, observant Jews are forbidden to use a telephone on the Sabbath because doing so would break an electrical circuit, which is known as doing work in the Jewish mentality. And so in the half hour, it took the rabbi to decide whether or not they could call the fire department. The fire spread to two neighboring apartment houses. And again, this kind of scrupulous attention to the law... That's the spirit of the scribes and the Pharisees. They said, in the smallest ways possible, we want to observe the law of God. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, hey, you, 
unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That's why I would have loved to see the faces of everybody to whom he spoke this to. They would have said, you've got to be kidding. I'm going to hell for sure. There is no way that I can be more righteous than one of these scribes or one of these Pharisees. No way, Jesus. Jesus, you have just told me that it's impossible to get to heaven because I know that I cannot live a life that is more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, this is what Jesus was doing in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. He was telling people that the righteousness that the scribes and the Pharisees had was not all that it appeared to be. Isn't that the truth? You see, the righteousness that the scribes and the Pharisees had, it was impressive to human observation, but it could not make a man righteous before God. It was righteousness that looked impressive to people, but God looked upon it as being a pile of filthy rags that he did not want to look upon. That's what we have to remember. And Jesus is telling his disciples, you need a different kind of righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees. You can't be more righteous than them in their kind of righteousness, but you can be more righteous than them with a different kind of righteousness because there was somebody there when Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, I think of Jesus. They're teaching the Sermon on the Mount. He's sitting down. Everybody else is standing. Look at this. We've got it completely backwards right here tonight. But there, Jesus was sitting down. Everybody else was standing. There's some of the disciples, right? Because we don't even have all the 12 gathered together yet, at least not in the Gospel of Matthew. There's some of the disciples. There's a bunch of people around. And there's some scribes. There's some Pharisees. They're listening to this. And among all that group before whom Jesus was teaching, there was one man there who was more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. And who was that? Jesus himself. And do you understand what the great message of Christianity is? The great message of Christianity is we can have the righteousness of Jesus credited to our account. I can tell you, in Jesus Christ, I am more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. In Jesus Christ, you are more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, why? Because you're so wonderful? No, no, you're probably not. But again, because of what is given to you by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's trying to shake up their whole idea of how great the scribes and the Pharisees are. And he's doing this almost with a shock treatment. He just put their heads into a bucket of cold water and made them think all in a different way about how radical yet insufficient the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees was. You see, Jesus was letting them know that we are not made righteous by our keeping of the law. And when we see what keeping the law really means, we are very, very thankful that Jesus offers us a different kind of righteousness. Now look, I almost feel that we should stop right here. Because starting at verse 21, we go into a different section. But I said almost feel that way. I'm not going to stop right here. We're going to go on for another 15 or 20 minutes or something like that. Because it's just it, this is too good of what Jesus is doing for us to stop right here. But I just want you to know, there's a transition here between verse 20 and 21. Because in this section, Jesus is now going to explain to them the true meaning of the law. Oh yeah, the scribes and the Pharisees with all their righteousness, you guys think they're so holy because they keep the law so great. Well, let me tell you something Jesus is going to say. They don't keep the law so great. And let me show you how they don't keep the law so well. I'm going to tell you how to really understand the law. But nobody for a moment should think that this is Jesus against Moses, right? As if Jesus and Moses are battling out. Well, Moses says one thing and Jesus says another thing. No, no, a thousand times no. This is Jesus against false and superficial interpretations of Moses. Now you see, in regard to the law, the scribes and the Pharisees made two fundamental errors. Sometimes they would restrict the law of God in a way that it should not be restricted, 
And then other times they would extend the law of God in a way that it should not be extended. Jesus is now going to correct those errors. It's really a thrilling passage. Starting at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be in danger of judgment. But I say to you, Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Wow. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is the structure of this, because this structure is going to be repeated to the end of the chapter, more than we're going to get through tonight. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Now again, notice this. First of all, you have heard it said. Please understand that in Jesus' day, for the most part, the people had not really studied the law of Moses for themselves. The law of Moses for themselves, I should say. All they had was the teaching on the law from the scribes and the Pharisees. And in this particular matter, the people who had heard the scribes and Pharisees teach, heard them say, you shall not Murder. Now this is very, very significant. If the people would have been reading the law, reading the Bible for themselves, it would have been different. And I want you to know what a blessing has come into this world by simple people reading and understanding and taking the Bible seriously themselves. And what darkness there has been in this world when the church or when the culture has restricted people from reading the Bible. A biblically literate people are a free people before God. You take away their biblical knowledge and they become enslaved by religious systems. Absolutely so. So notice the contrast. You've heard it said. In other words, you didn't say you read it in the Bibles yourself. No, no, no. You heard it said, and then secondly, but I say to you. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus shows his authority? Do you know what he's saying? He has more authority than those old guys. You have heard that it was said to those of old. Now, aren't there many people who think that just because something is old, that it must be true. Well, why do we do it this way? Well, tradition, right? Tradition. That's the way we do it. And the old traditions, they must be true and they must be good. Listen, please remind yourself, something is not true just because it's old. And if it's not true, it's antiquity Its oldness is no credit to it. Listen, if you separate oldness from truth, that thing is all the more dangerous because it's old. I have to read this from one of our favorite commentators that I quote from time to time, the old Puritan John Trapp. He just has such an interesting way of phrasing things. He says this, Antiquity disjointed from verity, or truth, Antiquity disjointed from verity is but filthy hoariness and deserveth no more reverence than an old lecture, which is so much the more odious because he's old. Well, you know what? That's a very dramatic way of putting it, isn't it? Nothing more disgusting than a dirty old guy, right? And if something's old, but it's wrong, if it's false, it's no credit to it that it's old. And therefore Jesus says, no, 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 you've heard it said of old, but I say to you, he doesn't rely on the teachings of previous scribes or teachers. He doesn't say, you've heard it said of old, but Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi this and that says this, and he says, no, but I say to you, I'm going to teach you what the true understanding is of the law of Moses. He has the authority. What does he say? Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. Now, what did the scribes and the Pharisees teach? They taught you shall not murder. And is that true? I think we can get an agreement here. Do not murder. Okay, good. We have that agreement here this evening. Very good. We agree on that. But yet the 
scribes and the Pharisees also taught that anything short of murder might be allowed. No, you can't physically strike a man, but you can hate him in your heart all that you want. Now, Jesus corrects this, and he made it clear that it's not only those who commit the act of murder who are in danger of judgment, those people who have hearts full of murder and murderous intent in their mind, they're also in danger of judgment. And you see, Jesus here is exposing the essence of the heresy of the scribes and the Pharisees. To them, The law was only a matter of the external performance, right? That's what mattered to them, how it looks on the outside. But Jesus says, no, no, no. It's not only about the external performance. It's also about the heart. And Jesus brings the law back to the matters of the heart. Now, can I say something that's very obvious, but sometimes misunderstood and overlooked here? Jesus is not saying that anger is just as bad as murder. We would be profoundly morally confused to say that somebody who shouts at another person in anger, right? Uh, You're driving. We often do this when we're driving, right? We're driving. Somebody does something very cruel to you while they're driving. They cut you off or this and that. And you're just filled with this anger, this you know, and you, you scream out something horrible, something that we cannot repeat here. You scream it out at them, right? Now that's bad. And Jesus tells you it's bad. But that's not the same as going out and actually murdering that person, right? Even though you may feel like doing that as well. No, no. Jesus was not saying that anger was equivalent to murder. That's not what he's saying. No, what he's saying is that the law condemns them both. You can't excuse your anger and just say, well, I didn't murder the guy. I'm okay. No, no, no. No, the laws of the people could only deal with the outward act of murder. That's all they could deal with, and that's all it should, right? The the government shouldn't be passing laws against anger. But expressions of anger, yes. But not the inward thing of anger. But the government should be passing laws against murder. Jesus declares that his followers should understand that God's morality addresses not only the end, which you might say is murder, but also the beginning, which is anger. All of it is addressed by the law of God. And so here Jesus says, put away this anger. And then he goes on, he says, and whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. To call somebody Raka expressed contempt for their intelligence. And then he talks about calling somebody, you fool. That expressed contempt for their character. And either one of those broke the heart of the law against murder, even if it did not commit murder. And it's not like Raka or you fool, were especially vulgar or filthy words in Jesus' day. No, more so what they showed was absolute contempt. The, the word raka is interesting. I, I like what uh, William Barclay said about it. He says, raka is an almost untranslatable word because it describes a tone of voice more than anything else. Its whole accent is the accent of contempt. It is the word of one who despises another with an arrogant contempt. Well, Jesus says, no. When you show that kind of contempt for your brother, that kind of hatred, that kind of I just disregard you and you're worthless to me or to anybody else, that, Jesus says, is a sin. And it is a sin as murder is a sin, not equivalently so, but they are both to be regarded as sin. Well, let's just look at the very next section and then we'll call it an evening and pick it up in the middle of this next time. Verse 23. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go on your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly 
while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hands you over to the officer, and you be thrown into the prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Don't you think it's interesting? Jesus has in mind here somebody bringing a sacrifice to the temple, right? I'm bringing my sacrifice to the temple. Here's my little lamb that I'm going to offer before the temple for a sin offering or a fellowship offering or a burnt offering or whatever it's going to be. Here's my little lamb that I'm bringing. And as I'm on my way to the altar, I remember, whoa, I offended my brother and he's really mad at me. What does Jesus say? He says, listen, you don't even go to the altar. You go get things right with your brother first. Well, but, but, but look at this great sacrifice I'm going to offer. God, don't you care about this great sacrifice, this great religious service that I'm going to do? And what would God say? He would say, yes, I care about that sacrifice, but I care more about the damaged relationship that you have with your brother or with your sister. You know, this also gives us something very powerful, something that people like me in particular have to remember, the, the, those of us who, who give our lives in some kind of Christian ministry or full-time Christian service. We can't think that our service towards the Lord justifies bad relationships with other people. Remember what Paul commanded in Romans twelve eighteen. He says, If it is possible, as much as depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. Now listen, as I say these words, I, I hope that there's people coming to your mind maybe right now that you need to make a reconciliation with. You know, it's great that you come to Bible study or you go to church or you serve God in this way or in that way, and it's great. And Jesus didn't say, don't go to the altar. He just said, it's more important for you to be right with your brother or your sister. Matter of fact, Jesus says here, agree with your adversary quickly. Get rid of the anger. Get rid of the malice. And when you ignore it or pass it off, what's the result? It imprisons you. He says, and you will be thrown into prison. I find it interesting that Paul expressed much the same idea in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath, right? That there should be an urgency in getting things right with your brother or your sister. And then Paul goes on, because when we hold on to our anger against one another, he says that we give place to the devil. Matter of fact, Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you've paid the last penny. It's a very dramatic way of phrasing it, isn't it? But I just wonder, I wonder how many people are imprisoned by a bad relationship that they haven't reconciled. You know, maybe tonight's the night for that. Maybe tonight's the night where you you write that email or you send that letter, you make that telephone call and it just says, you know what? I don't even want to debate it anymore. I'm just so sorry. Will you forgive me? And I'm happy to forgive you. I I mean, really, is there going to be that much profit in going through and taking the thing to court, so to speak, and you playing attorney on one side and they're playing attorney on the other side and you're debating the case back and forth to see, well, okay, isn't this good? You actually have 51% of the blame and I only have 49% of the blame. Well, that makes me feel much better. Isn't it time just to say, listen, I'm so sorry. It was a long time ago. Let's just forget it. I'm, I forgive you. I hope you'll forgive me. I'm so sorry that it ever happened. Especially this can be true with things in the past, the distant past. When uh, Charles Spurgeon came to the Metropolitan Tabernacle, or to the church that became the Metropolitan Tabernacle, the new Park Street Church, he was a very young man, and when he first came to the church, there, there were certain people in the church who had grudges or, or bad blood uh, against his predecessor, the guy who was the pastor before him. And instantly, one of these guys comes to him and starts complaining to Spurgeon, saying, well, you know, this, and this, this man did this against me, did this against me, and Spurgeon could just feel the anger and the bitterness oozing out of the man. What an angry, bitter man he was. And Spurgeon said, you know, don't you think you should just forgive the guy and move on? You know what? Just let it go. Just forgive him. And this is what the guy said back to Spurgeon. He said, time does not change facts, sir. Because it all happened a long time ago. He says, well, listen, you know, a lot of time, but that doesn't change all the facts of what happened. You know what Spurgeon said? He goes, well, it's true. Time does not change facts. 
but it should change a child of God. And you should be more godly now than you were when these things happened. And you should have more forgiveness and love in your heart now than you did back then. Well, you know what? Maybe time has not changed any of the facts. I hope it's changed you and made you and me more mature before God. And we take this seriously, what Jesus said. He's speaking to you and I as his disciples how important personal relationships are and how we need to have a passion for putting them right as much as it's in our control. Let's face it, sometimes it's not in our control, right? Sometimes a, a person is just determined to be against us and there's nothing we can do. Okay, great. If that's the case, then whatever you can do, do. But whatever you can do, do it and do it for the glory of God. Well, we're leaving ourselves right in the middle of this section, right after verse 26, right before verse 27, but we're in this broader section where Jesus is reinterpreting the law, and next Tuesday we'll bring it up again and talk about these very things. So let's close with prayer. Father, uh, we thank you that there is a right and good way of understanding your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand it all in light of Jesus Christ, in light of who he is, in light of what he has done for us, and Father, in light of how he tells us to live. And so, Lord, give us an understanding of the importance of putting things right, of being salt and light to this world, being like a city set on a hill. We want to be your people in this generation, Lord. Keep challenging us by this tremendous Sermon on the Mount, We pray in Jesus' name, amen.